Our text this morning is coming from Luke chapter 18. So if you'll turn there, Luke chapter 18. Um, This chapter begins with two parables. And uh, the class that Jim and Karen are teaching is going through parables. And after those two parables, it gets to real-life situations. Uh, Parables are are once-upon-a-time type stories to illustrate something. But after those two parables, you get into real-life situations. And wouldn't you know it, the first real-life situation has to do with babies. I thought about when when, uh, Michelle was kind of cranking it up in Sunday school, and I thought, isn't isn't the crying baby a beautiful sound? It is a beautiful sound. I said, well, you can come and, you know, rock them at night for me, but it, it's, when I was in church, you know, we didn't have a nursery. When I grew up in church, we didn't have children's church. We had parent-child consultations outside the church <laughs> th- th- through, the, through the course of the church service. And that was, our, that was our indoctrination as to what church was about. But, you know, you had a, a baby, they, you just kind of like got used to it. And I think sometimes we... We ought to be thankful for our little ones. Well, Jesus had all these babies being brought to him, and who wouldn't? Who would not want, as parents, to put their infant child into his hands and say, can you just bless my little boy, my little girl? And then the disciples thought that that was just so beneath him to take up his time to do that. And, and he gets through that. And then the next thing, you have this inquiring man about eternal life and how to have eternal life and his name is not Nicodemus he's another man and right after that you have Jesus with a I'm just tracking chapter 18 here with you uh, a personal time with his disciples that they totally don't get and he could he couldn't explain it even more clearly than than anyone could about what was going to happen to him and the last part is the man who just got absolutely uh, out of order and yelling for Jesus' attention, and it was because he was blind. And he wanted to be healed. And you know what? His healing was pretty much secured when he started yelling. Because in his mind, he knew that man would heal him. All he had to do is get his attention. Great. Great personal accounts, aren't they? These, these are real people. This is really going on. But I want to take you to verse 18. To this one man, this is not a parable, this is an actual exchange, a dialogue that Jesus had with a man about a very important subject. Verse 18 is where we're going to start from. It says, a certain ruler asked Jesus this, good teacher, good master, some might translate, but it is a word for teacher. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, there's no one is good except God alone. Well, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Now the man replied, all these I have kept since I was a boy, since I was young. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have 
and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. And when this man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for a rich man, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, now I've heard all these people talk about a little opening in the wall. You mean, <laughs> that the camel gets down and crawls through. I, you know, I, I tend to just think that Jesus was saying a camel going through the eye of a needle. And that's why they says, well, in that case, who can be saved? And when he heard that, he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Now in verse 18, even though this man was asking Jesus about eternal life and how he could inherit eternal life, it may be that what prompted him to ask this question was one of those parables. The parable of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple of God praying and how they were both praying and, you know, the Pharisee didn't come out of that story too well, did he? And and people say, well, this says a ruler. It could be a magistrate. It could be someone in the civil authorities, but it's probably maybe more so a leader among the Pharisees. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. You know, the same word in John 3 that describes Nicodemus as a ruler of Jews is the same word used here. A leader. Someone who has an authority in a group. Same word. And I believe it prompted him since he felt like that maybe Pharisees needed a better representation than that story. Who knows? But he came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And there's that little word that kind of qualifies where this man was coming from. What must I do? What steps do I take to make sure? When he said eternal life, he was talking about heaven. And Pharisees believed in heaven. He was talking about when I die, how do I have the assurance that I will be in heaven? This is what he was asking. And that little word do kind of gives us a picture of his perspective. He was more concerned about his activities and what he was doing and that there was something more he could do to have eternal life. He wanted Jesus to give him. He was very wealthy. We find that out later in the story. Not on the front end. You know, Luke doesn't introduce him. This is a very wealthy man coming to Jesus. We find out later by his reaction that he was a very wealthy man and didn't really want to let go of his wealth. 
And maybe your translation of the Bible says the rich young ruler or wealth, wealth in the kingdom of God. Does your, your division say something like that? Well, we don't know that. He, didn't come, he doesn't come that way. He's really inquiring, how can I make sure that I have eternal life? This is how he looked at faith. Faith was all about oriented toward his actions, which people can do that today. That we feel as close to God as we possibly can feel when we're doing everything we're supposed to do, right? And the danger of that is, if we're not doing well, we feel like that God doesn't feel toward us the same way. And we attribute to God human emotional shifts, right? That when I'm really on it, that God is smiling and he's happy with me, but otherwise he's just kind of disappointed in me. I had a chance to counsel someone this week about that very thing. About being oriented that that God sees us according to how we perform. And if we're performing well, God God loves us more. (laughs) Well, the last time I checked, when he died on the cross, he loved us because we were sinners, rebels. That he did that because he loved us not... Did he do that whether or not we were going to get saved or not? Did he do that whether we were going to get saved or not? Did he die for everybody? He might have known everybody's not going to get saved. A thief gets saved next to him. Another thief doesn't get saved. But he was dying for both of them. And so here's this man. And, and listen to what Jesus' response was to him. He said, you know, first of all, have you ever wondered why Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? You ever thought about that? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but only God. And it's kind of like to me, I think he said, well, you qualified me to answer the question when you told me I was good. So here's my answer. You know the commandments. This is why I believe he was a leader in the religious establishment. He says, you know the commandments. You, you know exactly what the commandments say. And listen to what commandments he used to speak to this man. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not steal. Do not bear false witness. And honor your father and mother. They're not in the order that they are in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But this is five commandments that he gives this man. You know the commandments. And they are in his wheelhouse. Think about this. His question was, what should I do? What can I do? Give me an action point that I know for sure that when I die, I will go to heaven. Is this man by himself, by the way? And what people want to know, just tell me what I need to do. I'll pray the prayer, I'll get baptized, just I'll join the church, I'll do anything that's going to guarantee me eternal life. And Jesus gives him these commandments. And these are not like beneath the surface stuff, are they? You know whether or not you're committing adultery. You know whether or not you're stealing. 
You know whether or not you're lying. Maybe. Because some people get so good at it, I really think they come to the point where they don't, they don't even know they're lying. I think that's possible. You know whether or not you're honoring your father and mother. One of those last six commandments, Jesus does not give him. Do you know which one they are? It is? No, one of the last six commandments. The only one related to his relationship with people. Covet. I was looking at the missionette room sometime this week, and they had the, just a real condensed Ten Commandments. And I think number ten is, don't want what other people have. <laughs> so maybe they understand want and covet a little bit. But the reason I believe, and this is all speculation... Covet is a condition of the soul and the mind. And you can't really tell if somebody is coveting. Unless they act out their coveting. They may covet the rims on your car. But you'll only know it when you come out and your car's on blocks. And then you know, somebody done coveted. No, that's not what you say. <laughs> somebody done coveted. No, you don't say somebody coveted your rims. Somebody has stolen my rims. But before they stole your rims, they coveted them. And I don't think the Lord was going to tell this man, you will not covet because there's no way to measure that except someone being honest in their own soul. But you can measure the other things. You can measure honoring your father and your mother. You can, that's not a below the surface. Young people know if they're honoring their father and mother. And some young people and some children can honor their parents in their presence until the bedroom door is shut. Or they're talking to their friends about each other's parents. You know, I, was, I had a morbid fear of my dad because he was 5'11 and weighed most of his life around 240 to 250 and was a massive man. And I was a little skinny guy. So I was like, tried to be on my best behavior. But one of our siblings, I won't say which one because this is on podcast, <laughs> shut the door and turned around and, and stuck that person's tongue out. I'll not give gender here. Just when my mother opened the door to catch her. I said her, didn't I? Yeah. Well, I got four sisters, so you can just, you know, play the lots there. Just when she had her tongue stuck out and my mother, I think my mother sensed that there was a little problem there. So she waited and opened the door. I got you. <laughs> but most people, most young people, most of us in this room, we thank the Lord that it didn't say, agree with your father and mother, but honor them. And Jesus told him those 
commandments, and you know what he said, right? Got those covered. I've practiced that since I was a small child. And what did Jesus say to him? You want to know what to do? You still lack one thing, sir. And I just feel like that maybe that guy says, oh, yeah, one thing. Just one thing. This is going to be good. I'm, I've got the commandments covered. One more thing. And I think the man was deflated as he heard what Jesus said. Sell what you've got. Sell everything you got. Give all the proceeds to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Here's what I believe this man heard. He heard when he said, sell everything you have. He heard that. He heard, give it all that you get for it to the poor. But he didn't hear the last two. That's all he heard. Sell everything. And in my mind, he, he is saying this. Everything? Everything? And that's the title of the message, by the way. Everything with a question mark. Everything? Give it all to the poor. Whatever you get for it, give it all to the poor. But he missed these two things. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. This is what he was aiming for. This is what it it looked like he was aiming for. He, He wanted to know that heaven would be his destination. And Jesus said, you will be locked in to heaven. Not necessarily that the action of doing that, but the motivation behind it would qualify you that you've got your priorities in order. Then he said, come follow me. The man walks away. He walks away. Jesus looks at him. And he says, how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me just get you to stop right here on what this guy was doing and what he was asking and what the Lord told him. Because the Lord didn't tell him anything different than he told James and John when they were working with Zebedee, their dad, in the family fishing business. And he was there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, up around Capernaum, when he looked at those two young men and said, give up your connection to your family business and come follow me. Or to Matthew when he said, leave your cushy revenue job that's gotten you a pretty nice living and a pretty nice home and all the amenities that come along with that Wonderful job, revenue collector. He says, you leave that totally and come and be full time. The Lord wasn't telling this man anything different that he told those 12 men. But he didn't hear the same word. He didn't have the same reception to it. 
You know, this is not a parable. This is real life. Think about it. What did Jesus say to him? What, did, what was Jesus' invitation to this man? Do what these men behind me have done, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and join us. Maybe we miss that. Maybe we think that the Lord is just saying to him, follow me and God bless you. And wherever you go in life, may you find people who will take care of you. Because you just liquidated all your assets. No, he was telling him, trust me. Trust me to take care of you. Put your life into my hands like these men behind me have put their lives into mine. They have done what I'm asking you to do. And it's kind of like he had 12 apostles, but it looks to me like Jesus was opening the space in that group for him. Can you fathom that this man missed an opportunity? I don't find many places where Jesus opens the group to someone. Come and be part of my group, the intimate men that I'm discipling. Follow me. And Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to do that. Why? It's hard to let go of your stuff, isn't it? And if you have a lot of it, you had a lot of it. A lot of it. And he just couldn't let go of it. Money is a God. Can be. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of it. Wealth can be intoxicating. I think what the Lord was saying is that it's hard for people who have a lot of money to trust in God for salvation. It's hard. Because they, they just kind of like depend on that, right? See, what the Lord did not tell this man was the first four commandments. But he was exposing that man's perception of the first four commandments. The first one is what? You will have no other God besides the Lord your God. And the second is material substance that you've created with your own hands and carved out and you give your love and your affection to that that you have idolized and it becomes a substitute for God. And this man wanted eternal life, but he had a substitute already in his life that he depended on and he just couldn't bring himself to let go of it. And then someone yells out, well, how can anybody be saved? If that's the case, well, what is impossible with man is possible with God, right? And here Peter speaks up. Out of all of the, the disciples that's going to say something, <laughs> you got to love Simon Peter. He speaks and then thinks. But on this occasion, he was the one who, who spoke up about what they had given up. And this is what he said. 
We have left all we had to follow you. We have left everything to follow you. Everything we owned. Everything that our hands were dealing with, we let go of it. Now I want to ask you, do you think he's complaining? Who knows, but I don't think he is. I think he's just declaring, we know what you're asking that man, and we gladly let go of our vocation, of our families. And as far as we know, you can research this, because I researched it before this message. And there was some church father that said that Philip the apostle was married, but it's all a little iffy. But we do know this, that Peter was one of the apostles that we know for sure was married because it's hard to have a mother-in-law if you're not married. Right? Praise God for mother-in-laws. Amen. Our daughter-in-law has a wonderful mother-in-law. And our son-in-law has an absolutely wonderful mother-in-law. And it was Peter's mother-in-law that was sick that Jesus went into her home and healed her, was it not? And when Peter was saying, you know, I I don't know how to answer any question on this, so you can throw all the questions at me because I don't have an answer. But we do know this, that Peter had some obligations that he let go of. And I do believe, while it's not in the record, that somehow Peter made sure that his family was taken care of while he was doing this. And yet Jesus said this to Peter. You know, no one who has left all of that is going to be robbed of it here. Whether it's a mother, brother, sister... Anyone who's left all of that is going to get that and more in this life. And treasure in heaven. You get both. You get both. This man could have had both. According to what Jesus said, you don't give up anything here for me without it coming back to you somehow. I think all these men got more family than they know what to do do with in the kingdom of God. You know, the song we did, I Surrender. Judson Van Deventer wrote that song. I think somewhere around 1896. That's an old song, isn't it? Billy Graham referred to him as Reverend J.W. Van Deventer. You know, like it is well with my soul and Horatio Spafford and the situation with his family. You know, you, when, you, when you know the history of that song, that song means a lot more to you. And we just, we just went through I Surrender All, one of the great hymns. But there's a story behind that. Reverend J.W. Vandeventer was an accomplished man with instruments, played as many as 13 different instruments, 
taught art and music in school. Very involved in his Methodist Episcopal Church in Pennsylvania. But people saw how involved in church he was and they started talking to him. Have you ever thought about going into evangelistic work? Preaching and being an evangelist. And yet he had this this skill set that was phenomenal. And he was leaning on it for his life. And it took him five years of wrestling with going full-time into an uncertainty of ministry or keeping that secure job of teaching music, which he was very good at. And in his own words, he described how this song came about. He said, the song was written while I was conducting a meeting at East Palestine, Ohio, in the home of George Sebring, who had uh, developed this Sebring Camp Meeting Bible Conference. This is in the 1800s. And for some times, he said, I struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last, a pivotal hour of my life came, and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart. And touching a tender chord, he calls me to sing those words. Billy Graham was connected to this man. In fact, Billy Graham graduated from Florida Bible Institute in 1940 in Tampa. It's now called Trinity College. And we actually played Trinity College when I was on the basketball team at Southeastern in Lakeland. And you know what? They, they were bragging then about, this is Billy Graham's alma mater. <laughs> they still brag about it. I would too if I was them. We beat them. That was... We beat the Baptists. Nah, I'm sorry. That wasn't our motivation. We had a very good team that year. But it was known as Florida Bible Institute, and Billy Graham said, During my days in Bible college, one of the evangelists who influenced my life early in preaching was Reverend J.W. Vandeviter who wrote, I Surrender All. So he would come down to Tampa after his retirement years in a winter home there and would teach at that school. And he says, we would go over to his house for fellowship and singing. He says, we love this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman and often gathered there for fellowship and singing. When you think about it, all five stanzas of that song began with the same words. All to Jesus, I surrender. And when you get to the chorus, the refrain, three times in the chorus, and the chorus is very short, three times in the chorus is the phrase, I surrender all. 
And if you've got the, the lead sheet, the men would have a response to that twice. I surrender all. When you're having four-part harmony. So if you would sing all five stanzas and the chorus to that hymn, you would sing the word surrender 30 times and the little word all 43 times. All because a man came to a pivotal point in his life where he had to decide what this man in Jesus' audience decided not to do. And that was lay down everything that you held on to. Everything that caused your life to be secure and totally trusted the Lord with your life. I think what Peter said was like, what this man refused, we gladly accepted. We have surrendered everything to the Lord. Again, the words of Jesus. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. You know, growing up in Harpersville, Alabama, Harpers Valley PTA, I remember that. People would make fun of Harpersville when that was, I'm dating myself, I know, Harper Valley PTA. But it's a little dinky town, small little town. But I'll tell you what, if you can make it through town without getting a speeding ticket, you're doing good on 280. I'm not going to ask how many's got a speeding ticket in Harpersville. But that's how they get their Christmas bonus there. And they have yet to stop me. I know it. When it says 45, you better go 45 or below. But here we are in this little, little small world, small world. Jimmy was talking about when school started. We couldn't wait for September. Because we got relief from working. Come on, school. We can only hold so much when we get home after school. We can only tend to the chicken houses so much when we get... But we got the relief. The grand relief was school. But you had this mentality of smallness. And yet, my mother infused in our minds the greatness of God. And all four of her daughters ended up being the wife to a pastor. And pastored as far away as Mississauga, Canada. Now, that wasn't a smart move on their part. It was the will of God, but it says, well, what, why did all of you scatter out like that? Not all of us scattered out, but she gave us the space to see what God had for us, and she never discouraged it. She loved us being near her, but she never let on to influence us in any way, and I thank God for that, and I guess it's Partly my fault that our kids don't feel like they need to live close to us. But I never wanted them to feel like that they owed anything to me. They needed to trust God. And what I'm going to ask you this morning, as Brandon comes to the platform and the praise team,
what would the Lord say to you? You got one thing missing. One thing. Not ten, but maybe one thing that's holding you back from being all in, for surrendering everything, everything, not most of the... He didn't ask him, you know, stuff that you don't mind parting with, go ahead and sell it. He says, liquidate your assets. Liquidate all of your safety net that you have for yourself and your family and trust me with it. Now, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people in this room that would advise that person. Well, God wouldn't want you to make your life that vulnerable. That, and, and maybe I'd be in the group saying, well, you know, that, that's not a very smart move on your part. And yet there's families that watch their children head off to a mission field like Turkey. Like Scott and McGavney Strickland. Knowing that maybe the next time they come home is for a funeral. You never know, do you? Is it fear? Is it obsession with something? Is it watching people's lives that's done that? And he says, I, I'm, I don't like the way it turned out for them. And you hesitate to trust God? What is the one thing? Is it resentment? Anger? Disappointment? Maybe you're having trouble trusting God? That guy had trouble trusting Jesus. And you know what happened to him? He lost the opportunity of a lifetime. Because one day he died and everything he didn't want to sell instantly became the property of someone else. He wasn't taking any of it with him. Hopefully somewhere down the road, he wised up and said, this is all vain. This is all temporal. None of this is going to last. And it would be neat to find out if he did in the early church. Became one of those who sold their properties and suddenly realized that all their stuff didn't matter as much as the people of God. Would you stand with me?